Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. And it's my pleasure to welcome all of you here to hear from gubernatorial candidate and former Congressman Dennis Kucinich. He is here as part of our ongoing effort to put you in direct conversation with the people shaping the future of our state and the people who hope to lead it, specifically the candidates for governor of the state of Ohio. This November, Ohioans will head to the polls to cast votes in races in all 16 congressional seats, one Senate seat, and the offices of Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Treasurer, and Auditor. And over the past year and a half, we have heard from nearly all Republican and Democratic candidates for governor. And now that we're less than three months from the primary, the Republicans have two candidates remaining, and the number of Democrats in the race keeps shifting. At any rate, here we are today with Mr. Kucinich, a Cleveland native, Dennis Kucinich began his political career in 1969 when he was elected to Cleveland City Council at the age of 23. He began his career as a city club speaker in 1971. And in 1977, at 31 years of age, Mr. Kucinich was elected mayor of Cleveland. At the time, he was the youngest person ever elected mayor of a large city. His two-year tenure as mayor was known for his refusal to sell municipal electric light and power known as Muni Light to the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. His decision was later hailed by many as visionary. Mr. Kucinich served six terms in Congress from 1997 to 2013, during which time he ran for president in both 2004 and 2008. More recently, he has served as a contributor to Fox News and campaigned for Issue 2, Ohio's ballot initiative to lower the prices the state pays for pharmaceuticals. He is also known for his involvement in global affairs, particularly in Syria, where he has met on multiple occasions with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, including interviewing him on Fox News in 2013. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please welcome gubernatorial candidate, Dennis Kucinich. Thank you very much, uh, Dan Malthrop, uh, members of the City Club. Everyone in this city knows my work in pursuit of peace and social and economic justice. I spent 16 years representing Cleveland in the U.S. House, warning this country to avoid disastrous wars, to take a new role in the world as a nation among nations, to use our wealth to build the good life here at home, to build new structures for peace abroad and here at home, to make the dream of nonviolence a reality. Since 2001, America has spent $6 trillion for security, pursuing wars based on lies under the false assumption that we had to fight them there or we would fight them here. The annual budget for the Pentagon and for wars now exceeds a trillion dollars. War and the impulse to war has cycled up in the world. Millions of innocents have perished. And the war has come home. 14,000 persons were killed by gun violence in the U.S. last year. Eight million assault weapons circulate freely in the U.S., ready to unleash horror in our schools in every public place. The war, its weapons, and the mentality they bring have arrived on our shores. As Walt Kelly once wrote, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Time after time, I rose in Congress to take a position against the leadership of our federal government without regard to party on matters of war and the mass violence it precipitates everywhere. In 2001, I called for the creation of a new structure devoted to addressing the proliferation of violence in our society. In 2012, I introduced the doctrine of strength through peace into the narrative of a presidential campaign, calling for America to come home from its 100 bases in 130 countries and create here at home jobs for all, housing for all, health care for all, education for all, and clean air and water for all. I took these stands precisely because I'm from Cleveland, because I remember growing up in Cleveland, the oldest of seven children. I remember the struggle of my parents 
the struggle they had trying to find a place for us. I remember living in 21 different places by the time I was 17, including a couple of cars. I remember living in neighborhoods of color where blacks and whites alike were riveted to the daily concerns of shelter, adequate food, clothing, health care, trying to keep a step ahead of the bill collectors, trying to avoid violence which inevitably spilled out of the tenements into the streets. I'm not simply saying that I remember where I came from. I'm saying this is who I am. It's why I'm not afraid of taking on powerful interest groups, because some of us who grew up on mean streets aren't afraid of anything. It's why I fought to save public power, Muni Light in Cleveland, because it matters what people pay for electricity. I've taken on the mob, banks, utility monopolies, real estate combines, insurance companies, never quit, never gave up, never faltered, kept pushing against the odds, not just hoping to change the outcome, but envisioning new possibilities, identifying them, calling them forward, naming them, setting them into motion until the seeming impossible occurred. Miracles abide in each one of us, waiting to be awakened from our fear-induced slumber. Paraphrasing George Bernard Shaw, I see things that never were and say, why not? Why not health care for all? Why not jobs for all? Why not clean air and water? Why not prosperous family farms? Why not restoration of our lands? Why not peace? Five years away from my service as a member of the United States House of Representatives, I stand here as a candidate for the 2018 nomination for governor of Ohio. My campaign, which began on January 17, 2018, has brought forth an agenda, including rebuilding our state's infrastructure, jobs, workers' rights, business investment, the environment, regenerative agricultural policies which restore economic vitality for family farmers, criminal justice reform, prison reform, new drug policies, marijuana legalization, fully funding public education and higher education, state broadband, consumer protection, health care for all, full public transportation funding, restoration of local government funds, an end to partisan gerrymandering, and public financing of state elections. At latest count, our campaign has advanced 48 separate initiatives. From day one, I told the people exactly what I would do, including ending fracking and deep injection wells, stopping for-profit charters from stealing, giving local school boards and local taxpayers control over charter schools, nullifying House Bill 70, which is a path to privatize public education, ending for-profit prisons, making health care more affordable and more accessible by creating a not-for-profit system. Now, I would have been content to run to the May 8th primary with those four dozen issues and a few dozen more. Each one is salient. Each one is necessary. Each one a path toward a new Ohio, free of the constraints of interest groups, defined by our campaign motto, power to we the people. This is not simply a slogan, but an aspiration to realize, as did James Madison in 1789 when he wrote, quote, all power is originally vested in and consequently derived from the people. That government is instituted and ought to be exercised for the benefit of the people, which consists in the enjoyment of life and liberty. I was prepared to proceed with the campaign for governor in that spirit, in the context of those issues. But events intervene in a campaign in much the same way that life occurs while we make our plans. And we can either stay with what we planned or pay attention to what's going on in the moment, to explore the intervening events for deeper truths, no matter the impact on an election. I did not know it at the time, but this election changed when a gunman armed with an assault weapon entered a high school in Parkland, Florida and killed 14 students and three staff while wounding 14. When that happened, I thought about my own community. 
I remember that Cleveland once had an assault weapons ban. As the soul rattling cries of a bereaved mother whose daughter was gunned down in Parkland echoed across the nation, I reflected that Cleveland passed an assault weapons ban in 1991, a ban that stood for 19 years, that is, until a new attorney general, a Democrat, took office. It has been reported that the new AG, quote, defended, unquote, uh, unquote, a state law which superseded local laws. The truth is, neither he nor any of the attorneys general who preceded him was required by law to enter any case since the Ohio Attorney General's office is constitutionally independent. This particular attorney general elected to take up the case. Why? He did so at the prompting of Ohio's gun organizations and the NRA. In order to ingratiate himself with the gun lobby, he initiated court action, which led to the repeal of Cleveland's assault weapon ban and blocked every other city in Ohio from taking similar action. To put an exclamation point on his rationale for leading the way to overturn local assault bans, he later called the court's decision, quote, a victory for gun owners, unquote. Now, I dug further into the Democratic Attorney General's relationship with the NRA and discovered that he and the Texas Attorney General were leaders in a case popularly known as the NRA versus Chicago, which had the practical effect of undermining every single public safety ordinance relating to guns in every city in America. Cleveland, Columbus, and a number of Ohio cities were on one side trying to protect the streets of our cities, and Richard Cordray and the NRA were on the other. On March 1st, 2010, the Plain Dealer wrote that the Democratic Attorney General's support of the, NRA's, uh, of the NRA case, quote, could ultimately make it tougher for cities to pass and enforce highly restrictive local gun control laws. If the High Court agrees with the, with the positions taken separately by Cordray and the National Rifle Association, it could handcuff the ability of Cleveland, Columbus, and cities nationwide to respond to gun-related violence, the city's attorneys contended in a legal filing. As a city, this is a, a quote, quote, as a city confronted with safety issues day in and day out, do we have the ability to ultimately do something about it? Asked Cleveland's law director. Now, home rule is a fundamental principle of self-determination, which is accorded every city under the Ohio Constitution. But the then Attorney General, a Democrat, single-handedly dismissed home rule as a right and made it subordinate to the gun lobby. Here is the political and moral blind alley he led local communities and states into. They are now strictly limited to what they can do to, limit, to regulate gun violence. Those who advocated for Ohio cities said state judgment should not be replaced by a federal constitutional standard, that states should be allowed to continue to experiment with solutions to gun-related violence in their communities. Mr. Cordray, unfortunately, stood with the NRA against the states, specifically against the cities of Cleveland and Columbus. For his efforts in the Ohio Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of the gun lobby, he earned an A from the NRA. He was the first Democrat on the case, the first Democratic state official in the nation on this case to work with them. Quote, every single official act Richard Cordray has ever taken has been consistent with a vibrant support of your Second Amendment rights, unquote, said the Buckeye Firearms Foundation in its endorsement. One unpublicized official act was an, a very unusual intervention with the Capitol Square Commission. As the commission's attorney, the attorney general directed it to permit an armed group to have a rally on the State House grounds, even taking the extraordinary step of assuming personal responsibility for waiving an insurance requirement in the event of an incident. Now, given this mendacity, one could only imagine the direction Ohio could be taken. As Attorney General, Mr. Cordray clearly made his office an extension of the NRA 
even bragging to gun groups that he seized the, quote, opportunity, unquote, to use the power of his office to represent their interests in assault weapons and all gun issues. After Parkland raised a public outcry over assault weapons, sadly, Mr. Cordray falsely claimed at a candidate's forum in Union County just two days ago that state law forced him to take up the case against Cleveland when, if he had any pangs of conscience, he could have easily hired special counsel to defend the legislature's actions, something the AG's office under his control spent millions on every year. Instead, he volunteered to take up the case of the NRA. My fellow Ohioans, we are at a moment of soulful awareness where most of us recognize that the time has come to change our policies with respect to assault weapons. It is time for the institutions of state and national governments to advance, to balance the requirements with protecting the Second, Second Amendment right to bear arms with the necessity of protecting our citizens from certain arms which are, in fact, weapons of war. One year ago, the Fourth Federal District Court of Appeals in Virginia recognized this, ruling that the State of Virginia assault weapons ban, which covered 45 different types of weapons and a 10-round limit on gun magazines, was legal because, as one justice put it, we have no power, this is a quote, we have no power to extend Second Amendment protections to weapons of war. NBC News quoted Maryland's Attorney General, quote, it's unthinkable that these weapons of war, weapons that caused the carnage in Newtown and in other communities across the country, would be protected by the Second Amendment, said Attorney General Brian Frosch, who as a state senator was responsible for the ban. On June 12, 2017, a Sig Sauer MCX designed for use by Special Operations Forces was used to kill 49 and wounded 58 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. On October 1st, 2017, as 22,000 people attended an outdoor concert, over 1,100 rounds from a modified semi-automatic weapon were fired from 500 yards away into a crowd, into the crowd, killing 58 and wounding 851 persons. The killer had an arsenal of semi-automatic weapons, some modified to produce maximum casualties. The shooting at Parkland, Florida, this Valentine's Day, may have been a tipping point because the nation heard this soul-rattling grief of, bereaved, of a bereaved mother and the outrage and the determination of those students who survived, who have since sparked a national movement which, which uh, has growing legal and political support. The U.S. Supreme Court on November 27, 2017, declined to hear legal challenges to the Maryland assault weapons ban, so it stands as law, as do similar bans passed by the states of California, Connecticut, Hawaii, and New Jersey. Last evening in Washington, D.C., Steny Hoyer of Maryland, the Democratic whip of the U.S. House, became an original co-sponsor of the assault weapons ban of 2018, just introduced in Congress. Congress had established such a ban in 1994 at the urging of Presidents Ford, Carter, and Reagan. The ban lapsed in 2004. Hoyer, in a statement, noted, quote, after the previous ban ended, the number of mass shootings increased 183%, and the number of deaths in such attacks rose 239%. And also, last night, Akron City Council, led by Democratic Councilwoman, Tara Samples, who is here with us, voted by an 11 to 2 margin to become the first government in Ohio to vote in support of a resolution which calls on the Ohio legislature to pass an assault weapons ban. Thank you very much, Tara. <laughs> Last week, two Ohio Democratic senators, Michael Skindle and Shalita Tavares, brought forth legislation to establish an assault weapons ban. The events of the last two weeks have settled deeply into public awareness. Last week, I had three separate conversations about assault weapons which are relevant to this discussion. The first was with high school students who related to me they no longer feel safe in school, that the thought of someone bursting into a classroom with an assault weapon leaves them feeling very distracted and very vulnerable. When our children should be thinking about learning, they are instead thinking about their own survival. Teachers told me that they, too, consider the risk to their students, and they consider the grim possibility of having to take a bullet to save the life of one of their charges. 
It is hard to imagine that under such circumstances in the classroom, some see more guns as the solution to the threatening presence of guns or advocate arming teachers as a way to cl make classrooms safer. At a community meeting in my own, own ward, I asked for a show of hands of about 50 people in attendance. I asked, how many of you in the past two years have been in a public place and the thought crossed your mind that someone could enter that space with an assault weapon and begin shooting? Nearly everyone in the room raised their hand. And I asked those who are, are watching and listening to this if you would agree and that's how you feel. How has it happened in our society that no public place or public space is considered safe? The deeper question is why have the has the level of gun violence, particularly mass violence, cycled up? This is a human health issue. If 14,000 people were suddenly struck dead by a disease with dozens dropping in mass, we would find, we'd search out the cause, we'd find a cure. We must explore what philosopher Eric Fromm called the anatomy of human destructiveness. We must fully understand why such gun violence is occurring. We must discover what is it in our society, our way of life, our culture, our times, which has unleashed such terror. Are we failing spiritually to grasp the moral dimensions of the moment? Has life, which is so fragile, so temporary, become so cheap, its end so instantaneous, its purpose, its journey forgotten when punctuated by bullets? When and how did human freedom become so narrowly defined by the freedom to own an assault weapon? As governor, I will not convene armed groups outside the Capitol. I will convene unarmed groups inside the Capitol to search for solutions to gun violence, to take our state in a direction where we all feel safer, where we can direct our energies, not just to self-protection, but to self-improvement, to self-unfolding, to contributing to making our communities healthy and wealthy. Every jet of chaos which threatens to exterminate us is convertible by intellect into a wholesome force, wrote Ralph Waldo Emerson. We are at a moment where we must recognize the dangers which assault weapons present to civil society. We must seek consensus which supports public safety and physical and mental health. This is yet another reason why we need a not-for-profit health care plan in Ohio, which fully supports and covers access to mental health care and long-term treatment whenever or wherever needed. We can make major strides in eliminating gun violence through law, while at the same time supporting our Constitution. These words from Thomas Jefferson inscribed on his memorial guide us still, quote, I'm not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, he said, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and manners and opinions ch change with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. Less than two weeks ago, on Valentine's Day, 14 students and three staff members were killed and 14 wounded at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. We must remember their names, their lives so full of promise. We must remember the way they died and resolve never again. It is we, the living, who must now provide new meaning to their lives so brutally cut short. We can and must demonstrate a new awareness and with it a new courage to meet squarely the issues and the instruments of violence in our society while protecting our essential freedoms. We must remember their names and their ages. Alyssa Alhadef, 14. Scott Beagle, 35. Martin Duquet, 14. Nicholas Dwaret, 17. Aaron Fees, 37. Jamie Gutenberg, 14. Chris Hickson, 49. Luke Hoyer, 15. Kara Lofren, 
14. Gina Montaldo, 14. Joaquin Oliver, 17. Elena Petty, 14. Meadow Pollock, 18. Helena Ramsey, 17. Alex Schachter, 14. Carmen Shentrup, 16. Peter Wang, 15. To their friends and families, we remember. And your grief will be our constant reminder of what those of us in public life need to do to take a new direction which confronts the realities, which confronts interest groups who have cowed public officials and who have flooded our country with weapons of war. I want every Ohioan to know that if I am elected your governor, I will be your governor and no one else. No interest group in any way, shape, or form has a hold on me, nor ever will. I will not sell the office to a political party, to a contributor, to an endorser, to anyone. My only interest is and will be the good of the people of the state of Ohio, the health, the safety, and the general welfare of our people. Accordingly, with terror samples, I will lead the way to a ban on assault weapons in Ohio so our children can learn freely in classrooms, so our teachers are not under constant threat, so that we may all reclaim a safe space in our public places, that safe space where the comfort of security and peace of mind resides. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Today we're enjoying a forum in our Ohio 2018 Meet the Candidates series. Today's is a presentation from Dennis Kucinich, former congressman, former mayor, former city council member, and now candidate for the governor of Ohio. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, including guests, city club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our webcast or our Facebook Live video. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the city club and we'll work it into the program. You can also leave it in the comments section of the Facebook Live. Holding our microphone today is our content coordinator, Bliss Davis. May we have our first question, please. Thank you. I was uh, happy to hear from you today. Um, House Bill 512 was proposed on February 14th in which a new department would be developed called Learning and Achievement Department, which would have authority over all decisions concerning elementary, secondary, and post-secondary education. The State Board of Education on which I sit would no longer be responsible for education decisions. We would simply do license appeals and that would be all we'd be uh, responsible for. The governor would be in charge of this department and um, would be in charge of education in Ohio. What are your thoughts on that bill? First of all, uh, to Merrill Johnson, thank you for your service on the State Board of Education. Um, our campaign is about power to we the people and that means that elected officials have the responsibility, particularly in education, to be able to make decisions and create public policy. Uh, anything that takes away that um, ability to make decisions is adverse to the public interest. I'll be quite specific. Um, the state of Ohio has created uh, a system of, uh, of for-profit charter operators who have been able to um, uh, get about a billion dollars a year from the state government 
and, and local school boards have no control over this whatsoever. Local taxpayers who give money to those uh, uh, school boards in anticipation the money would go to public schools often do not know that a significant amount of the money that they give is being siphoned off by for-profit charters. Uh, I, pr I propose that as the next governor, I'll rally the people of Ohio, and, and if it takes a charter amendment to do it, we, uh, a constitutional amendment, we will endeavor to give local boards the authority to be able to make a decision whether they want to create a charter or not, and have the people of the community make the decision through their votes whether or not they would choose to fund it. It would be like a local option. Uh, again, with respect to the State Board of Education, we cannot support anything that strips the powers of the State Board of Education. As a matter of fact, there's a current proposal that would give the governor the total control of the board and not have any, uh, uh, and take away the control of all elected officials. I stand for a fully uh, functioning, fully publicly elected State Board of Education, not for, uh, for the specific purpose of enabling the people to be able to vote for who they want to make the educational policy. I see uh, House Bill 512 as just another step to the, on the path to privatize public education in Ohio. Now let me give you another example. House Bill 70, which created the so-called academically distressed uh, uh, commissions, that's a, a, a path towards privatization. They, they, they aim at breaking union contracts, at cutting teachers' salaries, at taking away the power of teachers to make decisions, and, uh, what they, do, and they take money away from the local schools. The school board uh, of, the, of Youngstown, for example, is disempowered. They're planning a similar thing for Lorraine. This is wrong. I mean, the essence of public education is public control, and they're trying to remove it. And so what I'm saying that as the next governor of this state, I intend to fully support public education, to give control of public education to the people, to, to uh, uh, raise the issue of educational funding, and to look at the DeRolf decision further uh, that needs to be instituted to fully fund public education in Ohio. Does that answer your question? Thank you. How should tax policies be changed and why? Well, uh, as a matter of principle, we need to create tax policies which stop the acceleration of the wealth of the state upwards. And, and it's, it, we have to look at it two ways. It's, it's, taxing, it's taxation, but it's also how we spend the existing money. Now, with respect to taxation, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a tax uh, loophole that enables LLCs to be able to escape uh, uh, taxation on a pass-through. And frankly, that uh, loophole ought to be cut, and that would yield about a, a, a billion dollars a year in revenue for the state of Ohio. But you have to look at the decisions that are made with respect to spending. Now, local communities are having to raise taxes because uh, the, the current governor uh, changed the formula on a local government fund and basically took the money away from local communities so they could create a $2, uh, $2 billion rainy day fund. Well, frankly, folks, it's raining in communities across this state. Uh, it's, it's raining in terms of streets that can't be repaired, in terms of police and fire that uh, are needed but can't be hired. Uh, local communities have to be re-empowered. So you take that, you take that $2 billion and you, find, and you support programs that help the state flourish instead of sitting on some kind of a nest egg for what? This is wrong. We need, to, we need to restore local government funding so local governments don't have to raise taxes at the local level because the state isn't, isn't providing the return of dollars. I just mentioned uh, charter schools. There's a, a billion dollars a year that's going primarily to for-profit operators who aren't functioning. Well, if you put that, uh, most of that billion, allowing that some districts may want to create local charters, they should have the, the ability to do that, but those who want to keep their money ought to be able, districts who want to keep their money ought to be able to do that, and we need to get the money back into public educational funding. That's, a that's up to a billion dollars we could give back to public education. So, you know, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there starts to add up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm saying that, uh, that our administration would be guided by tax policies that would create a, uh, a, a more fair distribution of the, of the tremendous wealth of this state but also to create jobs which provides more, more revenue at the same time. Uh, but this idea of, 
of taking the wealth of the nation and putting it into the hands of the few, which is happening at a federal level as well as at a state level, uh, has to stop. And, and I'm, uh, I'm one person who is ready to do that. Good afternoon, and thank you for coming today. Uh, no matter what else occurs this November, there is a strong possibility that one or both houses of the Ohio legislature will remain Republican. So a Democratic governor may have to deal with a Republican House or a Republican Senate or both. What specifically in your record can you cite as evidence that you will be able to negotiate successfully with Republicans to implement your goals? I frequently put coalitions together in the United States Congress between Democrats and Republicans, particularly on foreign policy, uh, one of which resulted in uh, stopping uh, the attack on um, Serbia in 1999. Uh, I put together coalitions that uh, held back an attack on Libya for a while because I was able to work with Republicans. In Congress, I didn't just stay in a seat I work the floor, and I work both sides of the aisle. I spend as much time on the Republican side as I did on the Democratic side, building relationships. During this campaign, I have not attacked Republicans, nor will I. What's the point? You want to unite the state. You have to be able to, uh, uh, to reach out to people. The partisan mindset is a destructive thing. If all we do is think that the, the, the font of all goodness and mercy resides in one political party and that the other party is somehow uh, uh, beneath the mercy of God, then we have to ask ourselves, what's wrong with us? Because we, we need to have an approach to our, to our government which embraces the possibilities that parties can find ways to work together. Are there sometimes fundamental disagreements? Yes. I recognize that. My voting record uh, is very clear on, on where I stand on various issues. But to be able to reach across the aisle, that's easy. Uh, the, and, and, I, and I will proceed in a way and, and govern in a way that enables people to have input, whatever their particular politics. Again, we have to get away from an ideological approach to government. We have to get away from a partisan approach. We need to focus on the needs of the people and find out how we can work together. And I will appeal to the other candidates in this race. Stop attacking people based on their political party. It, it actually, it's not only politically counterproductive in November, but it stops the potential of working together after the election. Thank you very much. Next question. Um. Congressman, thank you for your comments, uh, especially on the assault weapons. And I do want to tell you that I was heartened when you tossed your hat into the ring for the governor. Um, I'm curious as to your opinion on the supposed bipartisan compromise on the redistricting of Ohio congressional districts that is currently pending in our state house. Uh, are you speaking to uh, ballot issue number one? Yes. Well, I, you know, I, I support that issue in, in, um, in spirit. I think that uh, the people of Ohio have indicated their concern about gerrymandering, and it's the beginning of a discussion. There'll be a vote on it. There are some things that I have a concern about. I know a little bit about gerrymandering. <laughs> and I can tell you that the people of the, tenth, of the old 10th district know a lot about it because uh, the district was cut into four pieces. And it wasn't just separating communities that had affinity based on uh, socioeconomic and, uh, and other indices. But uh, it, it deprived people of an access to uh, federal decision makers because they just became partitioned into you know, one part of a much larger district. Um, and I'm going to just share something with you because the public record isn't too clear on this. It relates back to the question that gentleman there raised a moment ago. Um, the common assumption is that the, um, um, is that the Republican Party redistricted the 10th district and chopped it up. Um, that's wrong. It was uh, the Democratic Party leaders in Columbus who chopped up the 10th congressional district. And the impact of that was 
dividing a district that people had counted on to deliver big votes in, in, in state and national elections. So it was total folly from a political standpoint. But what happened on that is that the, uh, during the uh, run-up to redistricting, the chair of the state Republican Party said, look, we're, um, uh, Dennis's district is going to go. He got a call from John Boehner, whom, you know, I worked with on local issues relating to Mr. Boehner's district, but who, you know, I seldom voted with on anything. But because I established a working relationship, what John Boehner said is, look, we're not going to chop up Dennis's district. He tries to find a way to work with us, even if we don't, he doesn't vote with us. And so at that point, the 10th district was spared. Well, Democratic leaders in Columbus came back and said, if you don't accept our plan, which called for the 10th to be uh, dissolved, uh, we will uh, create a referendum on this and overturn your whole plan. So, they, so the Republicans backed off. I understand redistrict in a way that very few people do, because I, I also know that it's an intensely political uh, question. But let's not pretend that it's, it's simply the uh, Republicans who have a hand in this. I mean, you think about it. The Democrats, <laughs> Democrats are at least half of the votes in this state, yet the leaders in Columbus, in this political party in Columbus, accepted four congressional seats out of 16. Geniuses, right? Great bargainers. You think about it. They get four out of 16 when Democrats have half of the votes in the state. This is why this redistricting issue is a big issue. And I'm glad that issue one came forward. There's some improvements, I'm sure, that can be made down the road. But all Ohioans ought to be concerned about this. And the one thing is, you know, why the question I will ask, why did the Democrats do that to Dennis? <laughs> hey, look, I, I'm not interested in playing ball with political parties when they're representing utility, real estate, insurance, and banking interests that are, are uh, anathema to the general public. I, you know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm not anybody's uh, guy but the people of Ohio. Thank you for your question. Next question. Congressman, thank you for your remarks. Um, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on your uh, proposal to ban fracking in Ohio, why you feel it's necessary. A lot of people would say, you know, it's created a number of jobs. It's, it's helped pushing the country toward energy independence. I mean, an absolute... Uh, uh, um, abolition of it uh, seems like a pretty extreme measure. What, what, what do you propose and why? Well, the, the under, uh, thanks very much, uh, Tom Barris. The, the underlying issue is clean water. Uh, surface water, groundwater, and uh, fresh water supplies are all being contaminated by the chemicals that go into deep injection wells and also by the fracking process. In addition to that, fracking creates earthquakes. And, uh, and also, the, um, uh, this process inevitably creates uh, environmental disasters community by community, where fires are created and toxic gases go into communities. They had to abandon about 30 uh, homes in the uh, Powhatan Point area uh, about 10 days ago. Um, look, the, the question is, when we clearly see that our water is being polluted, and when we in Cleveland, who are blessed with sitting on the largest supply of fresh water in the world as part of the Great Lake chains, we ought to have more sensitivity to that. You, can't, you can always find a way to create energy, but to have access to fresh water, that is, that is the most important thing in the world. It's important for life. So no communities should have to uh, give up the, uh, poten the productive potential of their land, the, um, should have to uh, ruin their, their land and their access to uh, making it productive in order to have a, a, a cheap uh, um, fee from an oil or gas company. A lot of this frack gas infrastructure is set up to move gas out of the country for sale in foreign markets. It's not even about our own economy. We certainly, we need to take a new approach in our energy. But this idea of fracking and, um, and deep injection wells, uh, 
creates very few jobs there. If you go to the job sites of, of these enterprises, you'll see that most of the license plates at the job sites are from people out of town, out of state. So what are we talking about here? Why, why do we, in this state, guarantee the profits of these organizations that aren't from our state, the chemicals that are being injected in the soil of Ohio are coming from out of state. Other states don't want it. They, they, they inject it here. We're poisoning our earth. Terra Samples and I will bring a new environmental consciousness to this state. Because if you cannot have clean water, that's going to affect public health. No one has monetized the cost of what happens when you don't have clean water, when people are, are drinking poisoned water, when their children's health is being compromised, where, the, law, where the, the ability of the soil to be productive is ruined. But we thought about that, and I think it's next week we're going on a tour of, of uh, various communities that have been affected by uh, fracking and by deep injection wells. This is, this is a moral question. And the other candidates in the race uh, seem to be obtuse, uh, under, not even understanding that this is a, a serious environmental matter. But I know it well, and I intend to, uh, to do something about it. Uh, when, I'm, when I take that oath of office, uh, fracking and deep injection wells, uh, days are limited. Thank you. Thank you for speaking about the water and the land. Um, my question is about, um, it seems to me that related to um, the violence and people's attachment to their weapons, that there's an underlying uh, fear that is connected to that. And one of the fears I believe is connected to that has to do with racism. And I'm wondering, as a governor, what you can do to help us as a state address systemic and institutional racism. As I mentioned in my prepared remarks, uh, one of the things that people need to understand about me, if you want to know about my politics, I grew up in the inner city. And because we we're always renters, uh, sometimes the only rent we could find was in neighborhoods of color. So when you share a similar social circumstance, when you live together with people, you, the, physical appearances recede, and you get into the basics of life. And because I had the blessing of sharing a common experience with people in neighborhoods like Glenville and Cleveland, uh, I came to an understanding of the realities that people face whatever their color. And so because of that, um, I have a, a passion for addressing the issues of those who are striving to improve the quality of their life, whatever their color. It's not by accident or by sheer politics that I asked uh, Tara Samples to join me on, on the ticket. Uh, her experience as a mother of five, as a grandmother of 10, as a civic activist, as somebody who's a member of Akron City Council, uh, has equipped her not only for high public service, but also she and I have a common understanding of what community needs are, which has been reflected in our criminal justice platform in our uh, sharing uh, our concern about assault weapons and violence generally, and our, our willingness to shut down for-profit prisons and our desire to enable people to, who have served uh, uh, their time to be able to be reintegrated into society with full restoration of rights. Um, yes, there is racism in our society, but leaders need to um, have an awareness of our commonalities. And, um, and, and when I was mayor of Cleveland, uh, 40 years ago, half of my key appointments 
went to the black community. Why? Because it, not just because it was the right thing to do, but because it enabled the community to see itself reflected in institutional power. It enabled the community to understand that uh, a safety director who happened to be African American um, was representing the, the power of, of the community and the authority of the community. When we get past these, uh, the appearances of who we are and go to a deeper understanding of how we're connected as human beings uh, and come to understand our, our interdependence, our interconnectedness, we come to a point where race doesn't matter, uh, nor should it. But wherever it does, Tara Samples and I will systematically um, and definitively uh, root out any evidence of any sort which reflects uh, a misunderstanding and, uh, and even worse, racism. Thank you. I uh, know you're married to a lovely lady from England. Uh, tell me what uh, you plan to do to make Ohio a more welcoming place for immigrants than it is now. Well, I mean, you already gave me part of my answer, which uh, is relevant here. Uh, I'd like to introduce my wife, Elizabeth, who uh, is from London. Elizabeth, would you, you know. My grandfather, John Kucinich, because that's how they pronounce the name in Croatia, came from an area called Eastern Slavonia. His wife uh, from the old Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. On my mother's side of the family, her father came, uh, father's family came from Ireland. And, uh, and her mother uh, was French-Canadian. Um, I'm sure that everyone in this room has a, uh, a connection to another country, um, except for our Native American brothers and sisters, we're, we, we all hail from somewhere else. Uh, America's forgetting where it came from. We're forgetting our real strength is in diversity. The motto which uh, uh, is, is inscribed and blazoned on the canopy of the House of uh, Representatives, America's first motto, E Pluribus Unum, Latin for out of many, one. We need to aspire to that unity once again. We need to remember the deeper meaning of the words in, in, that are on the um, base of the Statue of Liberty, written by Emma Lazarus so many years ago, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these to homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. We need to relight that lamp. We need to become welcoming to people from all over the world. We need to change our immigration policies to keep families together. We need to make it possible for the dreamers who came here to be able to get all the full benefits so that they can go to college and pursue their dreams and make their contribution to this country. America can once again be a beacon to the world, but only if we reconnect with the essential truth of who we are. And that means welcoming immigrants, protecting immigrants, revering immigrants as vital to our identity as a nation. Thank you. The 2000 census and the 2010 census, Ohio became smaller, older, poorer, and less well-educated. And chances are some of those trends are going to continue. We'll see them in the 2020 census. The next governor has a chance to be governor through most of the 2020s. What would a Kucinich administration do to make Ohio, uh, to reverse those trends, make us 
more uh, uh, populous, better educated, uh, better off economically, and perhaps maybe a little younger. I don't know. Well, first of all, I, I, I do want to credit my father, who was mayor of Cleveland many years ago, with uh, <laughs> paving the way for this moment for me. Uh, I, think, I think that you know, one way of, of attracting, uh, first of all, let's talk about Ohio's economy. Uh, we need to hold on to the industry that we have, uh, particularly our, our, our steel, our automotive, our aerospace. And we need to, re to reclaim a role in shipping. Um, I want to see Ohio fortify what I would call a strategic industrial base. That's number one. But of course, we're in an information economy. And there's incubators of technology. Um, Columbus has one. There are some in this area as well. I want to tap the innovative potential of this state so that we can create the jobs of the future, which are in, in energy, uh, propulsion. I'd like to see a new partnership with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration at Glenn Research Center, uh, where um, we, we identify the kinds of technologies that can move Ohio forward, whether it's in information or batteries, energy, and create, uh, through the, have the government develop those technologies at the alpha stage and then license or sell them at the beta stage so that we can, the whole idea is incubate new technologies and move them forward. Uh, we, we have endless uh, possibilities in creating energy by changing our relationship with uh, the pollution that's in the lake and being able to harvest uh, some of the um, uh, blooms that are coming and trying to convert them into, uh, into energy. Uh, we need to incentivize our farmers to uh, uh, take a step towards regenerative agriculture. Here's an area that has enormous potential to, build, uh, to, to grow the economy. Uh, we know that the great challenge of our time is doing something about global climate change. The atmospheric levels of carbon parts per million are over 400 uh, parts per million. Uh, I want to see a program developed, and my wife's been very instrumental in, in helping to uh, me to think about this and to build it out, see a program developed where we enrich the soil uh, nutrient content for farmers, help them do that, and that will help sequester more carbon. And you can measure the carbon sequestered. You can monetize it and enable farmers to get more, to, to be more economically prosperous. We need to get more young people involved in farming. Farming presents tremendous opportunities, and so I intend to do that. Also, in our state, to keep young people here, we need to make it possible, at least for the first two years of college, to be tuition-free. That's possible. We can do that. We can help young people do that. And we also need a not-for-profit health care system, which will be a great way of incentivizing our economy. It'll lower the cost of health care. It'll, it'll, it'll cut out the kinds of onerous premiums, co-pays, and deductibles, which are disincentives to business. Business right now, the, the businesses that really care about their employees, they're, they're being hit by very high premiums. We need a state system which can enable people to keep the premiums low and enable our businesses to prosper. There's many ways that, you, you know, in health, economy, uh, research, development, that Ohio can move. And I'm ready to, to engage the, the creative uh, and productive talent of this state to bring people together, whatever their politics, to say, let's do it. Let's move forward. Thank you very much. Kucinich.com. Go there. Join us. Contribute. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum in our Ohio 2018 Meet the Candidates series, a conversation with Dennis Kucinich, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives, currently a Democratic candidate for governor of Ohio. Our community partner is the League of Women Voters. We also welcome guests at tables hosted by Kucinich Samples for Ohio 2018, as well as students from the Flow Homeschool Co-op. 
Student participation in City Club forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today, and that brings us to the end of our program. Thank you very much, Mr. Kucinich. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.